Welcome back to Humans of Grad School, the podcast about humans who happen to go to grad school. Being a grad student can often become a large part of our identity, but it's not the only part. This podcast aims to share the stories of students behind the research. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Humans of Grad School. Um, Usually these intro pieces are a little bit short, but I figured this time I would tell a little story that happened to me over the last uh, 24 to 48 hours. It's really silly and really dumb, but I don't really care. I'm going to tell you this story anyways. So if you don't want to hear it, you can just skip ahead to the episode and I won't be offended. But um, it's pretty silly and it's pretty funny. Um, so to kind of set the stage and set the context for this, a couple of weeks ago, I bought myself a new plant and I brought it home with me. And, um, instead of doing any Googling in terms of how to take care of it or what I need to know about its plant biology, I kind of just let it be in my apartment so that it can just kind of get used to the environment. And one thing I noticed in the soil was a rhizome. So very quick plant biology lesson, a rhizome, I'm pretty sure it's a rhizome, are these little spheres that essentially hold on to water for the plant. And they do this in case the plant goes into a state of drought or hasn't been watered in a while. They just try to hold on to as much water as they can so that the plant still has some sort of supply of water if that's the case. And so I had noticed in the soil that there was a rhizome towards the edge of the pot. So my thinking was, okay, great, this plant has a rhizome. If I end up getting a little bit behind in watering for whatever reason, it still has a mechanism to store some water. No biggie. So um, two days ago, it was my plant watering day, and I had noticed that this particular plant desperately needed some water at this point. It had been with me for about two weeks, and I hadn't watered it in the time that it came home with me, so I noticed that its leaves were starting to droop because it didn't have enough water, so I gave it a really, really good soaking. Um, And I just kind of let it be, because it just takes a little while before the roots can start gobbling up some of that water, and you notice a difference in the leaves. So that was very early in the morning. I'm talking like 7.30 a.m. So then that night, around 10 p.m., before going to bed, I figured, oh, I should take a look at the plant just to see how the leaves are doing, if things are looking a little bit better. So I walk into the room where the plant is and I don't turn the lights on because I just want to see how the leaves are doing. And you could see that the leaves are doing significantly better. A lot of them are standing up. They've unfurled. Things look wonderful. It's all happening. Things look good. And then I look into the soil and I notice that this rhizome is no longer at the edge of the pot. It is in the middle of the pot beside the stem of the plant and it is completely above the soil and um rhizomes don't move just to make this clear they do not move and so i start figuring out how how is this possible how did this rhizome move so i take a couple step back and i turn the light on to this room and i look inside the pot and that thing was not a rhizome it was a giant snail oh my god i've never seen a snail that big in my life it was the size of one of the lenses of my glasses and for anyone who knows what my glasses look like they are big i have very big lenses this snail i could see its eyeballs like i was standing over it and i could see each individual eyeball like like oh my god just the thought sorry just oh my god i immediately (laughs) go into a fight or flight response and i don't really know what to do with this snail because this snail is here rent free in my apartment um i do not want this snail here in my apartment and it is also right before my bedtime so for me i think you know i don't want to kill it i don't want to be that person Um, I don't want any bad karma associated with it. So it needs to go outside. This thing can't stay here. But then at the same time, I'm like, ugh, it's cold out. It's like bedtime. I'm tired. I don't want to deal with this. So ultimately, big mistake, I decide to leave it until morning. 
So I go to bed. I spend the night dreaming about this snail and how this snail will take over my apartment and have babies in my apartment and crawl all over my head while I'm sleeping. Um, and I wake up in the morning and I fling myself out of bed completely half awake. Like I have not fully woken up. Like I, it was bad. So I run over to take a look at the pot and see what's going on with Mr. Snail Friend that decided to show up in my apartment. And, um, I take a look inside in the pot and the snail is gone. The snail is gone. So at this point, once again, I enter into a fight or flight response. <laughs> And my brain is all over the place. I start going back to like first year undergrad physics and calculating like how many square feet is my apartment? How many feet per hour can a snail travel? How far could this snail have gone my apartment? I start looking and scouring every edge of my apartment because I don't know where this, like this thing could have gone anywhere. Is it in one of my other plants? Did it climb on my furniture? Like what is it doing? And so in my still half-awake haze, I am just running around, looking around like crazy. And then as I start to wake up, I realize that I don't see a snail trail anywhere in my apartment. And, you know, snails kind of leave some marks on the ground as they travel. And obviously, they're more noticeable the closer you are to the snail. And I start noticing that nowhere in my apartment is there a snail trail. And even the shelf that this plant is on does not have a snail trail on it. The planter itself doesn't have a snail trail on it. And then when I look inside the pot again, I realize that a lot of the soil has been perturbed in some way. It's been moved around. It's been shaken up. And that was not me. That was not me. I do sometimes move around the soil or I'll stick my finger in the soil to see whether or not the plant needs some water. But the way that the soil was moved around was not something that I would have done. So then I started thinking, okay, well, you know, it's getting much colder out. We're gearing up for winter now at this point. I had a suspicion. So I went and I started doing a little bit of a Google search. You know, do snails bury themselves? Do they burrow? Do they spend any time underground? Or are they completely above ground creatures? And in this Google search, I discover that in the fall and winter, snails will often burrow or bury themselves underground to keep themselves warm and to keep themselves alive during the winter, particularly in damp and moist soil. So I go back into this room and I grab a nail file because I am too scared to now stick my fingers in the soil. And I start excavating like Indiana Jones archaeology style, slowly scraping away layers of dirt, particularly in the areas where I noticed that the dirt had been messed up. And lo and behold, two inches below the soil, this little snail is lying down. It has burrowed itself completely, made itself a nice cozy damp little home in my plant. Um, and the first feeling I had, honestly, was relief knowing that there wasn't a snail on the loose in my apartment. So ultimately, that was the first feeling I felt. And then after that relief subsided, I was like, the snail cannot stay here. This snail is currently here rent-free, chilling with one of my plants. I don't know what it could potentially do to my plant. Um, it was not welcome. And just so everybody knows, this snail was in the plant to begin with when I brought it home. This wasn't like it was like somehow got into my apartment. It was in the plant. I thought it was a rhizome once again. So after some hours of building up the courage to deal with this snail, I decided that I need to get him outside. So in order to do that, I, I'm not going to lie, I put some gloves on. Um, I got myself all geared up, ready to go. Um, in my building, you have to wear a mask inside. So I already had my mask on. I had my coat on. I had my shoes on. I put on some gloves and I grabbed a Tupperware from my kitchen and I very bravely dug my fingers into the soil, picked it up, <laughs> threw it in the Tupperware, sprinted down the stairs and ran into the back garden area and uh chucked him into the bushes just chucked him so luckily for me he did not pop out of his shell in the time that i was doing this because i think i would have crapped my pants 
Um, he stayed in his shell because he was scared. So when I got downstairs, I plucked him out of the Tupperware, just kind of gently tossed him into the bushes where it would be a totally covered, damp environment for him to do well. So I'm sure he is thriving now in his new environment. Uh, breathed a very big sigh of relief and went back into my apartment. Um, and maybe just to give some context about how hard I was thinking about this and how scary <laughs> this was for me, like my appetite was non-existent until this snail <laughs> was out of my apartment. Um, the thought of having this living thing, this uninvited living thing in my apartment was not something that I could live with. Part of me was like, you know what? He's going to burrow. He's just going to chill there for the winter. Like, who cares? But then at the same time, I'm like, I don't think I can sleep knowing that there is a living snail in my apartment. And like, looking back on it, does it sound silly where it's like, oh, there's a snail on the, on the loose in your apartment? Like, 100%. It's not a bear. <laughs> like, it's not a bear. It's a little snail. But once again, that to me was more than enough to freak me completely out. And once again, this was the biggest snail I had ever seen in my life. I could see its eyeballs when it was crawling around in that dirt. So um, long story short, if you get a plant, I would suggest digging through the soil to begin with when you first adopt it and doing a quick Google search on the plant biology and supportive mechanisms of this plant. Because you don't want to make a mistake like me where you think it's a part of the plant's biology and it turns out that it is a critter living in your plant. So lesson learned. Um, yeah, it was a roller coaster, to be completely honest with you. It was a big emotional roller coaster. It was a journey. I was telling my friends about it. I documented it all on Snapchat for all my friends to see. It was a wild ride. And I am more than happy that I was able to step off this roller coaster and that it's done because I would have needed a barf bag. It was, it was a journey. It was truly a journey. So um, yes, that happened to me recently. That is the most exciting and also most horrifying thing <laughs> that has happened recently. It grossed me completely out, but now it makes for a good story. So hopefully you enjoyed that little tale of my snail mishap. Um, yeah. So anyways, that's what happened recently. Hopefully you enjoyed this story. I'm not going to spend any more time talking at this point, but I hope you enjoy this episode. Today's guest is Maisha, med school rejecter, friendship nurturer, and truster of the universe. Let's hear her story. So ever since I was little, I've always wanted to be a doctor, um, a physician, yeah. Um, and I think, so how did I make that decision when I was so young? I think it was like grade four, I knew it. Because in grade four, we had to make those like life posters about what you want to be when you grow up. Oh, and then I put a little, drew a little picture of myself as a physician. Um, I think, so how did I make that decision? A lot of it was family influence. So I have a lot of um, extended family members who are doctors and physicians. And I thought it was so lovely. Like you get to help people and talk to people and work with people all day. Um, and I also at the time didn't know of any other options. <laughs> so this was like one option that was presented to me. And I was like, yeah, this looks great. Let's go with that. <laughs> that's, that's what I wanted to be when I was little. Okay. Did that ever change or was it always like doctor and that's it it was like that for a very long time very long time so the only so it started kind of wavering after I got rejection rejected from all the med schools that I applied to <laughs> <laughs> so I first applied when I was in my third year of undergrad so that year and I, I applied to all of the schools in Ontario but I didn't get into any of them or I didn't get any interviews um, I mean I didn't really expect to and I told myself this was just a practice run but that was really the first time in my life that I got rejected from something that I wanted so badly. So I think as a natural coping mechanism, my brain told me I didn't want it <laughs> as much, right? I was like, yeah, they don't want me. I don't need them, you know? <laughs> that was basically my train of thought. 
um, and I took social psychology in my fourth year and it all made sense. I was like, ah, that's what my brain was doing. <laughs> um, but then I applied again, actually, because in the sum- the next summer, um, my uncle, uh, we had a family em- a health emergency and he was really sick. He was in the ICU at Richmond Hospital um, out in Richmond, BC. Um, and I was there for like 10 days. And I just, being in that environment and surrounded with the doctors and the nurses and the patients, I was like, oh my God, this is what I meant to do. I have to, like, right? So then halfway through the summer, and at this point, I already had two like part-time RA positions at two different labs. My summer was set, um, but because of this emergency, here I was in the hospital. And there I made a decision to write the MCAT again and reapply because I felt like the MCAT was the weaker part of my application. So that was a very eye-opening decision. I made that decision. I resigned all of my current positions that I held, (laughs) that I worked so hard to get, but, you know, life happens. Um, resigned those positions this was halfway through the summer so I there were no MCAT like spots available to write the MCAT in Toronto so the I got the very last date that's available it was September 18th they didn't have anything in Toronto but I was going to Western at the time so I was in London and they had a few spots in London I was like oh thank goodness Um, so I signed up for that last seat um, signed up for Uh, Princeton's prep course because the first time when I studied I studied by myself with the books from Kaplan but that didn't really work out so well so like let's try a different strategy you know I really I don't really like reading from textbooks I prefer um, going to class having a professor or a lecturer you know teach me things I really like that interactive experience and I get a lot more out of it so I signed up for the course was super expensive but that's okay you know these are investments that you're willing to make Um, so I went all in I went all in for the remaining half of the summer. This was like maybe beginning of July. Yeah, July is when the courses started. Um, But at the same time, one thing that I learned from, this is a little bit of a side story. My whole life, I've always just prioritized my academic performance. That was my top priority. How I do in school was always my top priority. So, um, but after going to Western, um, I learned from my peers there that there's more to life than just school <laughs> and it's so much better when you actually enjoy the other aspects and you're so much healthier anyways long story short I learned the importance of well-being and balance <laughs> <laughs> but it took me only 19 years to figure that out and going to Western so I'm extremely grateful for my time there um, Western has such a close place in my heart it is my favorite university by far and I've been to a lot of them um, anyways, but to get back to the story, um, I knew that I decided to write the MCAT. It was going to take bulk of my time. It'll be like a full-time job, but I didn't want it to be the only thing that I was doing. I still wanted to enjoy life. I wanted to still be close to home and see family and friends and, you know, so that was that. And I did have some of my family criticize me for not studying more diligently. Um, like, why are you enjoying life? You know, you should be focused on that. I'm like, well, you know. I don't really want to because this is summer. Uh, School is hard enough. So let me at least. um, So that was another eye-opening experience because I told myself, if I sign up for a career, that's going to be the most important thing in my life. And that's going to take up all my time. I'm not okay with that. I'm not willing to make that sacrifice. Because for me, having balance, spending time with family and friends, going on hikes and walks, that's also very important to me. So anyways, I wrote the MCAT. Um, It was very stressful, but you know, that's how it is. I reapplied again. Um, I also didn't really expect much this time around either because I was like, well, I decided so late. Anyways, but my undergrad supervisor at the time, my honors thesis supervisor at Western, um, she was like, no, Masha, you know, you have such a strong GPA and so many extracurriculars and you're such a good student. I think you really have a shot here. Like you're going to get at least a few interviews. So that kind of, I was like, wow, really? You think so? Oh, that meant so much. Um, so that kind of got my hopes up a little bit, but I didn't get any interviews. And oh, really? <laughs> I didn't get, I applied to six schools in Ontario and I didn't get a single interview. So that was quite a stinger. And you know what hurt the most is, or hurt even more was, um, I was okay with not getting interviewed, but when all of your close friends are also getting interviews and accepted, 
I couldn't help but think I wasn't as good or, you know, it really, I really questioned my self-worth there. Um, I felt incapable or it was just not a good time, not a good time. But thankfully I had a wonderful therapist at Western at the time who helped me really process all of it. Um, but that's kind of when I thought about it and started questioning it. Um, if I really wanted to be a physician. So, but I wasn't sure. Um, so I applied to grad school. Um, and I, the reason I applied to grad school was because um, when I was in my fourth year and doing my honors thesis, I was really enjoying it. I was enjoying it a lot more than my courses. And I was like, why do I have to do courses? Like, why can't I just do this full time? Because I was having such a blast in my lab. So then I was like, you know, that's what grad school is, right? It's like you do research full time and you just have to take like a few courses um, and you get to actually have a real impact. I was like, you know, that's, that sounds kind of like a cool option. Um, and I also thought going to grad school, like doing a master's, I knew I definitely didn't want to do a PhD right out of undergrad because that is a big commitment that I wasn't um, ready to make. And I was kind of confused at the time. I didn't know um, what I wanted my career to be. So I wanted to do a master's to increase my the strength of my application for whatever it is that I decide to do next. And I thought doing a master's would be a wonderful time to get to know myself better, to really see what I want to be afterwards, because I'll have these wonderful opportunities and experiences. But yeah, that's, I know you didn't ask that, but I technically answered a little bit of how I ended up in grad school. But <laughs> answer your first question, you know, did I always want to be a doctor? Um, growing up, I did. That was the always number one in my head. Um, but when I started, when I got rejected twice, and then I started kind of questioning it, I'm like, hmm, maybe I should consider something else. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, I feel like rejection, I think this happens to a lot of us who grow up who like have good grades or are told that we're smart. Like we end up tying so much of our self-worth to our academic success and academic productivity. And these are also conversations that I've had with my therapist. And so, <laughs> to, so to all of a sudden, like spend your whole life working towards this academic slash career goal. And then to experience that rejection, like how did that fuel for you? Oh, it was a sting. It was a major sting. Yeah. That's so I think the first time around I kind of brushed it off because none of my friends got any interviews. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. You know, this was my first practice run. This is when I applied in third year. The intention of me applying then was just to practice the application and go through the process so I can perfect it the next time I do it. It's the first time, you know, it didn't bother me at all. I was like, yeah, I didn't get in. That's fine. I, I didn't even want to get in, you know, and none of my friends got in. So life is okay. I can always apply next year. Um, but then when I applied next year, and got, and this was the real shot. Like this is a hundred percent me. This is everything that I've got on that application. And it's such an extensive application. Um, like so much time, money and energy um, is invested into this process. So when you put it all in and it doesn't pay off at all, like nada, right? <laughs> um, and here your friends are getting interviews and accepted. It was a major sting. It was a major sting. Yeah. I don't think I realized how much of a sting it was at the time because I was so swamped with my workload from fourth year um, because this, so the rejections come out in February or the emails, like they roll in from February to like April or something. Um, March, I think. Um, at the second semester, fourth year was probably one of the busiest in my life, if not definitely in undergrad, because I had four courses to take. Plus, I was doing the bulk of my thesis work, testing all of my participants, which took up a lot of time. Um, so I was quite overwhelmed with the workload. So because I was so overwhelmed with the workload, I don't think I had enough energy left to like worry about the rejections. Um, but it, it did manifest. It did manifest. Um, I just wasn't consciously aware of it but it definitely showed up. Um, but in the summer, when I had time to chill and really look back at it, uh, yeah, it was a major sting. And you know what? So the entire summer after fourth year, when I was accepted into my master's program, that self-defeated view of myself persisted. 
regardless of the fact that I had an admission to this wonderful program, I didn't even think about that. The only thing that I could focus on was that I got rejected from six med schools. Um, and that really stunk. And you know what the sad thing is? Every time I would meet somebody, they'd ask me, so what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to do my master's um, in neuroscience at McGill. They're like, oh my God, congratulations. That's so wonderful. In my head, I would tell myself, what are you congratulating me for? Like, I don't deserve that. Um, in my head, I was like, this was my default backup option. So like anybody could have gotten this. This is not worthy of a congratulation. Um, so now I realize that was like hella hard on myself. Um, but thankfully, I um, and people around me, so people who I was working with, um, because I was volunteering as a research assistant at the Mississauga Food Bank, um, and my supervisors there, they were like, no, my child, like, this is actually huge. And it's super impressive. I am so proud of you. Uh, I was like, oh, thank That's you. That's so sweet. I know. It is really sweet. Um, that was a lovely experience. Um, it was for about a month, but uh, it was wonderful. People told me this. But the thing is, no matter how many times people tell you something, if you don't believe it, it doesn't matter, right? So... I didn't actually believe it until a lot later into grad school. But thankfully now I'm in a lot better place. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about now. Let's talk about this better place that you're in. So where, where are you at now? Like what's going on? Yeah, that's a good, what am I doing right now? Well, right now I'm in my second year of my master's in neuroscience at McGill. Um, I'm working with Dr. Marco Layton, and he's in the Department of Psychiatry. So I get to do cool clinical research using human participants. Um, yeah, so I'm very happy. Let's just, yeah, I am very, I'm in a very grateful place. I was telling my friend Trisha this last night when I was talking to her, um, that's, if I could describe where I am right now and how I am, I'm grateful. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm grateful. Because, and the reasons that I'm grateful is because just because of like how everything worked out. So when I started my master's, I was actually in a different lab. But it started off very rocky. Um, I had major issues with my supervisors, like my supervisor, uh, we just didn't get along. And I knew right away, like this was not going to happen. Like I either um, like my options were to just drop out or change supervisors because I told myself, I cannot do a, a master's with this person. It was either no master's or a master's with a different person, but the option of doing it with that person was not going to happen. So midway through the year, this is like in October, I finally decided with the help of my parents that, yeah, I should really switch. That's, it's not a good, good place to be. Um, if, if your supervisor isn't supportive, you're not going to thrive. You're just going to be stuck in that place. And it's just, I could tell it wasn't going to end well. So midway through the year, I started looking for new supervisors. Um, it was hard enough finding a supervisor the first time around. Uh, when you look halfway through the year, when people's grants are already like all allotted and they have all of their grad students, it was very challenging. Like this time right now, last year, so like October, November of 2019 was so challenging, honestly. Um, because of that aspect. I was in a limbo, basically, because I didn't have anywhere to go. Um, I couldn't, I don't have a lab. And as a grad student, like, what are you without a lab? You know, it's like no student, right? Um, so I was really desperately trying to find somebody to work with. But at the same time, you don't want to work with somebody just because they say yes, you want to actually love what you're doing as well, which is so important. Anyways, long story short, after many interviews and with the help of the administrative people from my program, I was able to meet my supervisor and he somehow decided to take me. Um, and for the first few months after joining this current lab, which I'm so grateful for, but I had major imposter syndrome, which I think is so common in grad school. But for the longest time, I thought, I honestly genuinely thought that he only took me out of pity. I really did. I thought like he's a really nice guy. He's very sympathetic. Um, and he used to be a graduate program director before. So he knows what this process is like for students. So I, I literally thought he was doing me a favor. And I didn't feel like I deserved to be where I was. So that was kind of a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> not gonna lie. And yeah, that was not a hard pill to swallow. But um, 
and I didn't believe it. So obviously then friends would tell you, no, he, nobody is willing to pay you money and, you know, employ you and take you as a grad student if they don't actually see any potential in you. But these words never came from him. It was just from my friend because I didn't even ask him. Right. Um, but I didn't actually believe it that I belonged or that he even wanted to work with me until this summer, which was um, a lot later because that's when I was doing my analyses and I finally felt like I was able to do something that impressed him. Yeah. And that's finally, I was like, okay, okay, good. You did something good. You know, you did something worthwhile, something meaningful and significant. So thankfully I got very lucky. I got very lucky and now I'm very grateful just because of the way things worked out. I, I get to be in this lab um, because my project is all data analysis. It was not affected by COVID at all. Um, which I'm so grateful for because I know so many people had to change their projects because, you know, you can't test humans right now or any participants. No one's going to want to voluntarily go to a hospital because of research, you know. Um, so I'm, at the time, I was kind of a little bit not the happiest when I joined the lab because one of the things that I was really looking for in my graduate school experience was um, working with patients, like working with the psychiatric population and collecting data from them. And I was kind of sad that I didn't, I, that I won't get to do that and that I just get to do data analysis, which I have no idea how to do. Um, but I mean, we'll figure that out later. <laughs> but now looking back, I was like, I'm thinking it, it was all a plan. Like it makes sense. Everything falls into place perfectly. And I couldn't even imagined any better outcome. Yeah. So I'm a lot grateful now. Um, yeah, and if things go well, I'm really happy where I am in terms of my, I guess, academic situation. Um, my supervisor is lovely. Um, people at my lab are absolutely wonderful. Um, I love the work that I'm doing, which I didn't always love what I was doing. Um, so that's really nice to be able to. So if things go well, I would really love to stay, stick around and maybe do a PhD in clinical psychology if we get in. I don't know. That's a that's a next problem for me. But um, all I'm trying to say is that if things didn't work out the way they did, like if my initial supervisor wasn't so terrible and if I didn't switch, um, I would have never met my current supervisor. I would have never been here um, so even though a year ago, I didn't understand why it was happening. Now it all makes sense. Wow. Yeah. So like the universe is just working for you right now. Thankfully, I'm very grateful for that. I was like, thank you. Thank you. Because I could have <laughs> never made this happen myself. <laughs> thank you, universe. Mm-hmm. So kind of you. Yeah. See, it's so interesting because I think there is a perception amongst grad students about like, if you have a supervisor where your relationship is not working in some regard, like there's this perception that you almost have to stay, like you can't move forward unless you stay and you just deal with it. Whereas in your case, you were like, I can't move forward if I like, I want to move forward, but I can't if I stay in this situation. Yeah. And I think what really helped me realize that was my therapist that I used to see at Western. It's because when I saw her, the thing, the primary thing that I wanted to work on was being more assertive and drawing my boundaries. And I told myself, what would she want me to do? Or what would, I, what would the version of me want to do? Um, and I thought about it. I was like, no, this violates so many of my boundaries that I choose not to move forward here. I just can't. It's just, it's going to be violating so much of my, like my morals. Um, my parents are very big on morals. So I think it's a little too hard ingrained in me, but if, um, if I, yeah, if I have to do something that goes against my values, if I have to work with somebody who, you know, violates them, um, it's just, it's just not going to happen. Um, yeah. I was like, I would, I actually told myself that I would rather not do a master's than do a master's with this person. I told myself that and, and I believed it and I still do. Like I, cause it, when you're making such like dramatic statements, what might seem as dramatic from other people, I actually thought about it. I thought about it a lot. I'm like, no, I actually really mean this. I'm not just saying this. Yeah. That's big. 
Um, I also want to talk a little bit about this imposter syndrome that you're yeah. feeling. I think we all feel it. I still feel it. And like, I'm in my last year of my PhD, <laughs> like it's never gone away. But yeah. do you remember when you first started feeling it? Like, do, was there something that like caused it or all of a sudden you were like, oh crap, like, I don't know if I belong here. Honestly, it started when I joined the new lab. Yep. So when I, when I was at my first lab, because that supervisor had actually reached out to me, I was like, yeah, I'm worthy. Like she wants me because she's the one who reached out to me. I didn't reach out to her. So that like when I, in my first lab, I had a lot of confidence. I was like, yeah, I know I belong here. I did my undergrad in neuroscience. Like what more could I have possibly done um, to be a, better fit here I thought I had I did everything right and I'm like I really deserve to be here but the part where I felt like I didn't deserve to be here was when I changed labs because I was convinced he only took me out of pity um to be nice but I don't think people are that nice but you know you obviously have some value that you can add but me a year ago didn't know that so <laughs> but yeah that's when it started when I joined the new lab yeah definitely okay so speaking about your new lab now let's actually talk about your research a little bit so what are you doing currently what is your research so what our lab focuses on is we use um, pet imaging to understand the neurobiology of people who have drug addiction so we try to understand what exactly is going on in their brain but more specifically we want to see is there something inherently different in the brains of people who then later develop drug addiction. So is there kind of like a vulnerability or like a risk factor that you can identify using a PET scan? Um, so my thesis right now, um, I made this biopsychosocial model. Uh, I know it's a bit of a mouthful. Basically all it means is that there's a biology aspect to it. There's a psychology aspect to it. And there's also a social aspect to it, which I think we all know, like no psychiatric illness is simple. There's always multiple causes contributing to it. So basically found or identified this model that consists of dopamine receptor levels in your brain that you can measure using a PET scan. Um, and it's a little technical. Basically, you throw people in a scanner, you measure levels of something that you're looking for. And here we were interested in dopamine receptors. So that's our biology aspect. For the psychology aspect, we were looking at their behavioral traits. Um, so a specific measure called externalizing traits, which basically means um, how much people... Um, direct their actions towards the outside world. So it's kind of examples of this would be like aggression, impulsivity, acting out. It's like you kind of direct or throw your emotions on something outside of yourself. That's externalizing, the opposite of internalizing, like when you bottle it all up. So that's the behavior aspect. And the social aspect of, is early life trauma or childhood trauma. Um, so basically what I found is if I, if I have a score on their childhood trauma questionnaire to, you know, identify how much trauma they had or they think they had. Um, and then if we have an externalizing score, behavior score, and then if we put them in a brain scan, using those three numbers, I can accurately predict with 90% accuracy who's going to get a psychiatric, who has a psychiatric illness and who doesn't. Um, and we're hoping that maybe this kind of data can then predict who's going to later develop something. Um, so it can perhaps in a perfect world be used as a diagnostic tool because I know it, the, the big problem with psychiatry is it's so subjective when making diagnoses. There's no like blood test or, you know, x-ray that you can do to like say yes or no, that you have this, you have this. Like if you have a broken bone, you do an x-ray, you see there's a fracture. Okay. Clear, simple, but there's nothing that clear or simple in psychiatry just because of how complex the problem is. So we're trying to make that process a little easier for, for uh, psychiatrists. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. What's something that you've learned throughout your time in grad school or you're learning on account of your research that maybe would be interesting for the general public to know or for like any person to know? I mean, people probably already know this, but um, your, your fate is not determined your fate is not determined. So if you have like biological history of a psychiatric illness, let's say your whole entire family has some kind of psychiatric illness, that doesn't mean you're gonna get it too. 
um, because it's so multifaceted. There's so many factors involved. There's the biology. There's, your environment is a big one too. And the choices that you make. So you have a lot of control over what's going to happen to your life. Okay. So you're doing this research, you're doing a lot of this biopsychosocial learning and understanding in research. Like at the end of this, do you still potentially want to apply to medical school with this newfound knowledge? Or is that an idea that has just been erased from your brain now? And now you're seriously considering the PhD path instead. So one thing that I actually learned quite quickly uh, from my grad school experience is that I need to be a clinician. That's just my thing, you know? I mean, as much as I love research, I don't really see myself doing research full-time as the only thing. Um, I am such a people person. I love people. I love talking to people. I need to be to do working with people. Like, I want to help people as directly as I can. Um, and I know research is super important, but it's a little bit more indirect the way you help people. You're not literally physically helping one person right away. So for that reason, um, I knew early on that I need to be a clinician. But I wasn't sure what type of clinician. So when I was at my first lab, which was at the Douglas Hospital in Montreal, there's this opportunity where you can shadow psychiatrists. So I was like, what a perfect opportunity um, to see if this is something I want to do. So I had the opportunity to shadow a psychiatrist last November, so November 2019. Um, absolutely love that man. He's such an incredible mentor. But one thing that I realized from what he does is I don't, that's not really what I want to do. And the reason for that is I feel like psychiatrists don't get to see their patients enough. And I really, what I want out of a career is I want to have a really good patient um, clinician relationship and a really good report. Like I want to know my patients well. And what I noticed with psychiatry is you see your patients maybe once every three months at most. It's once every three months, once every six months, or it's once a year. And it's for 30 minutes. Like you're not going to get to really know anybody in 30 minutes once a year, right? And the primary job of the psychiatrist, what I saw was to prescribe meds. And that's not what I want to do. I don't want to just prescribe somebody a list and see you next year, you know? Um, so that was wonderful. I mean, this is, that's why I did my master's is to get these experiences so I know what I want to do next. And um, my whole life I thought I wanted to be a physician. And well, that's what a psychiatrist does. So I was like, mm, maybe not for me. So, so that was good. And then when I joined the new lab, we currently have students in clinical psychology um, and I asked them, what do you guys do? Um, and they told me they see their patients a lot more on like a weekly basis. And it's for like an hour at a time. And you really get to know the patient. And you don't prescribe the meds. You do psychotherapy with them. And then I'm like, that's what I want to do. Uh, like the, what my, and I kind of, the way I got into like think into thinking about clinical psychology is having my own therapist. I was like, I love their job. <laughs> like, can I do what you're doing? Because just because I saw how much of an impact they can have on somebody's life. And it's, you know, I thought that was really um, rewarding. Like you get to see somebody once a week or once a month, um, but it was more frequent. It was at a frequency that I was happy with. Um, and you get to really know this person so well, like that connection and that relationship that you get to build. I was like, wow, you get paid for that? <laughs> like, sign me up, please. <laughs> so the next step in my career, if I'm lucky, the dream right now would be to be a clinical psychologist. And I told myself this, if somebody magically came up to me and gave me an offer of admission to medical school or to clinical psychology, I would actually pick clinical psychology. That's yeah. big. Yeah. Yeah, I would I would pick just because that's what I see myself doing. Um, and I also have friends who are in medical school right now. So I ask them, what's that experience like? like? And the more I talk to them, the more I realize, yeah, that's not for me. <laughs> yeah. So so that's good. That's good. And, you know, I would have never made this realization if I didn't go through everything that I had to and end up here. So that's also why I'm very grateful for where I am. Wow. What's so funny is that like, as you were talking, I was like in my mind before you brought it up, I'm like, I wonder if she's ever considered like being a therapist. <laughs> and then, like, You brought it up yourself. Oh my God. 
Okay, so actually, alongside this train of thought, is there anything that you kind of learned along the way in grad school? Maybe it was something that you learned from your therapist. I'm not fully sure, but is there something that you feel as though you've learned along this trajectory that you think is really important? Um, everything happens for a reason. Just having that belief, it helps a lot. It helps a lot. Because this time last year, when I was going through what felt like hell, um, I mean, I was fine at the time because I told myself, this is just part of life. This is totally normal. It happens to 25% of grad students. You end up having to switch. So it's okay. It can happen to everybody. But for the longest time, I couldn't understand why it was happening. Like, why me? But then I was like, you know, it's random. Like, it happens. But now I realize, no, it actually, there's a purpose. You don't know it at the time, but you'll realize later. So it's okay. Like, even if everything sucks right now, and it feels like everything's burning and the world is on fire, like hang in there. It'll be okay. That's what I learned. Yeah. My friends helped me come up with that. Obviously it wasn't all on my own because they would tell me at the time, like, you know, I really believe everything happens for a reason, but you don't believe them until it actually happens. (laughs) (laughs) But now I'm in a better place where I actually believe it. That's so good. Okay. Well, thinking about these beliefs and like the conversations you've had with your friends, like I'm going back again to like Maisha outside of grad school. Like what is something about you that people don't know? Like what's a fun fact about you? That is a very good question. Fun fact about me. I have 25 first cousins. 25? 25 like and by hold on let's also because i heard the other day i was in a conversation with a friend and like my definitions of like first cousin second cousin what removed actually means ended up being very different from this person so first cousin means your parents siblings children exactly you got it okay 25 yes i am so lucky that has been my favorite fact about myself since like day one it's like Yes, I get to have 25 cousins. Can you believe it? My parents have like 50 each, but you know, I'm very happy with the 25. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great number. It's a great number. Yeah. And it's like a beautiful number. But yeah. So that is my favorite fact about myself that Aww. a lot of people might not know. Yeah. Oh my God. That's a nice fact though. Getting your family involved. It's very sweet. Yeah. And I think um, I'm so lucky just because... When I was born, I, was, I wasn't born here. I was born in Dhaka, Bangladesh, and I was surrounded. And I was just born into this ex- huge extended family, always surrounded with cousins. Um, every weekend we went to see them. So I was like, wow, like, this is incredible. I said, so I think it's because of those early experiences that um, family has been so important to me. So uh, when I think of myself and ask myself, who is Maisha? Um, I really identify myself as in terms of like, so my social relationships, Um, like I'm a cousin to this person and I'm a daughter to these people and sister to this person. Yeah. So I think that's my favorite way of looking at myself. Aw. So are you someone who like, if you move to a new place or go to a new school, like, are you someone that shows up and you're like, I need to find a friend here? (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) And it doesn't take very long. Like literally. So the, summer after undergrad so summer 2019 my biggest concern was preparing for the move to montreal which was going to happen in august and i was like what can i do to make this transition as smooth as possible so knowing myself i know i'm gonna feel lonely so let's work on being making new friends so the, the challenge that i posed to myself that summer was having the ability to have a conversation with anybody like regardless of age, we're talking three to 83, you know? Um, so I just put myself in situations. Like I would go to family gatherings and there'd be like a five-year-old. We're like, my sure perfect opportunity. <laughs> but also I was genuinely interested in getting to know this five-year-old more. Um, so that was a really fun practice. Yeah. And that really helped just because I think I prioritize relationships in my life so much. When I moved to Montreal, um, it, I, it took me in with open arms. That's, that's how I think about it. Yeah, I've met such lovely people, so many wonderful friends. Um, obviously, I'm not like as close of a friend to all of these people, but from meeting a lot of people, you really get to kind of build your social network and hone in on your niche of your really close friends. Oh, definitely. Okay, so 
and maybe this is just like an overlap of the last question already. Like I've already asked you, but like getting to know these people and sharing your perspectives with one another or getting to know, is there something that you've learned from all the people that you've gotten to know that you just think is like nice if other people knew as well, or like they've shared or imparted some sort of wisdom with you where you're like, Oh my God, like that's brilliant. Or that's something that I think is really important. What a good question. Love is the most universal language. I think that's what I learned. I mean, because when I was at McGill, I'm not sure if you know, but 30% of McGill student population is international. So I met people from literally every corner of the world. Um, and here I was from various ages, various corners of the world. But, you know, it doesn't matter where you're coming from or what you look like. But if you're just kind and compassionate and show some love to somebody, like you'll be friends with everybody. Like no one is going to hate you. So I, so from that, I think a good reminder is that um, love is a good universal language. Doesn't matter what you speak or how old you are, or if you can't even speak, you feel like a baby. Love is something that everybody can understand and appreciate. And it really brings people together, kind of like food. <laughs> <laughs> food is love. Love is food, maybe. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's something that would be nice for people to remember a bit more. Oh, definitely. Yeah, just to be kinder to everybody. Yeah. Definitely. Even if I could leave with a sentence for people to remember afterwards, maybe just be kind and have compassion for people. And that's something I kind of learned from working in psychiatry because I've noticed society has quite a bit of stigma against people who have like substance use because I work in a drug addiction lab, right? When you see like a cocaine addict, oh, this is their choice. You know, they're not a good person or they don't have their priorities, right? Just, I would really urge people to maybe not make that default conclusion right away and just consider that there's lots of other factors at play as well, you know? Not all of our lives are equally the same or just as fair. Maybe they had every circumstance against them, right? Like maybe they didn't have any parents growing up. Um, who knows? There, there could just be so many things. You don't know their story. So don't be so quick to judge. This has been Humans of Grad School. You can listen to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Humans of GS or Instagram at Humans of GS Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email humans of Grad School Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.